The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Medicine in Motion, Visual Guide to a New Generation in Care for Patients with Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KYU860. Downloadable practice aids are also available. This enriching activity will cover five modules. First, update your understanding of the epidemiology and pathophysiology of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as Dr. Elliott reviews what you need to know about the disease state. In the second module, learn about the signs and symptoms that should raise your level of suspicion for diagnosing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. The third module shares the best tools and practical guidance to use to confirm a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy diagnosis. In the fourth module, Dr. Elliott will discuss the latest advances for non-invasive treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with cardiac myosin inhibitors and where they may fit into current treatment. Finally, our last module will cover the clinical practicalities of integrating cardiac myosin inhibitors into patient care. Let's get started updating our understanding of the medical science of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hello, this is Perry Elliott from University College in London. Welcome to this visual tour of the pathophysiology, diagnosis, and treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a disease defined by the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy, which is not explained by abnormal loading conditions, which in everyday practice means hypertension or aortic valve disease. Typically, hypertrophy in this disease is asymmetric, involving the interventricular septum more than other segments of the myocardium. But we may encounter other patterns of hypertrophy affecting all segments of the left ventricle in a concentric pattern, or hypertrophy present in a much more isolated form, for example, towards the left ventricular apex. Many patients will also have obstruction to the outflow of the left ventricle caused by systolic anterior motion of the mitral valve, which results in contact between the anterior leaflet of the valve and the septum during systole. We may also see obstruction at other levels in the ventricle, for example, in the mid cavity, which is sometimes associated with the development of left ventricular apical aneurysms. If we define hypertrophic cardiomyopathy by the presence of unexplained hypertrophy, then we find that this has a prevalence in the normal population of somewhere between 1 in 200 and 1 in 500 individuals. And this prevalence appears to be the same, irrespective of ethnicity or geography. If we look at the prevalence of the disease in clinical populations, we find that the prevalence is much lower, with a reported prevalence of somewhere between 1 in 5,000 or even lower values, reflecting the fact that patients who are in medical care are generally those who have significant symptoms and represent only a proportion of the total number of patients who may have this disease. When we look at the lifetime burden disease, we see that it is dominated by three main outcomes, progressive heart failure, sudden cardiac death, mostly from ventricular arrhythmia, or atrial fibrillation and stroke. The prevalence of these complications relates to the age of onset of disease, with earlier onset associated with a much higher burden for all three of these major outcomes in the disease. Importantly, Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is associated with a significant annual healthcare cost, 
This is particularly marked in patients who have symptomatic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, where there are considerable inpatient and drug-related costs. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is defined by the presence of unexplained hypertrophy, which in the majority of patients is explained by mutations in cardiac sarcomeric protein genes. Between 5 and 10% of patients have other diseases, both genetic and acquired, some of which are age-specific, for example, inborn errors of metabolism that tend to affect children and adolescents, and other diseases that may present mostly in older individuals, for example, cardiac amyloidosis. The cardiac sarcomere is the basic contractile apparatus of striated muscle. The cardiac sarcomere is composed of a number of different proteins that are arranged in filaments, the thick filament composed of beta-myosin heavy chain, and the thin filament composed of actin, and a number of other proteins that are important in the regulation of cardiac contraction. Contraction occurs as the result of interaction between the globular head of the beta-myosin heavy chain and the actin filament. This takes place in the presence of calcium. The role of calcium in contraction relates to its binding of the troponin complex which results in a conformational change in a protein called alpha-tropomyosin, which exposes the actin-myosin binding site. Let us now look at the events of the cardiac cycle as they relate to the binding of beta-myosin heavy chain to the actin filament. What you see here is the process of cardiac contraction throughout a single cardiac cycle. If we start at the end of relaxation, when the myosin head is bound to actin, you can see that the binding of ATP results in dissociation of the head from the actin filament. ATP is then hydrolyzed to form ADP and phosphate, and this new configuration of the beta-myosin heavy chain is then able to bind once more to the actin filament. And in this conformation, it is able to loosely bind, or what is often called the weak actin binding conformation, to the actin filament. With the release of phosphate from the myosin head, the beta-myosin heavy chain assumes a new conformation. The release of phosphate increases the strength of this binding and is associated with a further change in the conformation of the beta-myosin heavy chain, resulting in the sliding of actin and myosin filaments, what is often referred to as so-called power stroke. ADP then dissociates from the beta-myosin heavy chain, enabling the binding of ATP and the initiation of the next cardiac cycle. Our understanding of this process of actin-myosin interaction is important in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because it has been shown that, particularly in the case of mutations affecting beta-myosin heavy chain, that this actin-myosin interaction is enhanced such that the probability of binding between beta-myosin heavy chain and actin is increased, which results in what is often referred to as a hypercontractile state. This hypercontractile state is associated with the increased energy utilization and inefficient contraction, which in turn stimulates a number of downstream pathways that result in compensatory hypertrophy of the cardiomyocyte. Understanding of this process is now providing us with a new therapeutic target to treat 
the underlying mechanism of disease. A new class of drugs, the cardiac myosin inhibitors, appear to promote a form of myosin, a configuration of myosin called the super relaxed state, in which the myosin heads are folded back onto the thick filament. And in this state, there is low energy utilization. Now that you are up to speed on the newest concepts in the medical science of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, let's learn about the signs and symptoms that should raise your level of suspicion when assessing patients. Patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may present to their GP or to their specialist in a number of ways. Many patients complain of symptoms, the most common of which is exertional breathlessness or exercise intolerance. But other patients may present with lightheadedness, presyncope or syncope. Many patients will also often complain of palpitation, which may be simply just an awareness of their heartbeat or rapid palpitations ectopic beats. Some patients will complain of exertional chest pain or tightness, which may be precipitated by meals and is often more prolonged than typical exertional angina. And in rare cases, patients may present with signs and symptoms of heart failure with fluid retention and other physical signs. When they present with symptoms, a characteristic feature is that the symptoms may vary from day to day sometimes related to activity, change in temperature, or dietary changes where eating a heavy meal may precipitate symptoms or exacerbate the severity of symptoms when they occur. Whilst hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can occur in patients of any ethnicity, there are a number of differences in the presentation of disease. It's been shown in black patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that diagnosis may often occur at a younger age, and is less likely to be associated with mutations in cardiac sarcomere genes. Black patients may also have a greater burden of symptomatic heart failure and are often more likely to have disease associated with obesity and hypertension. We also see sex-related differences. And in women, the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is delayed by six years when compared to men. This may relate to biological differences in the disease and how it manifests in men and women. It may relate to the reporting of symptoms, which may vary between men and women, or indeed to both conscious and unconscious bias in the interpretation of those symptoms by healthcare professionals. There is also evidence that women may be less likely to seek care when they experience symptoms. For most specialists, they will encounter a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in one of three scenarios. They may see a patient who is presented with symptoms of exertional breathlessness, dizziness, chest discomfort, palpitations. A patient may have been referred because of the incidental detection of an abnormality on examination, most typically of a heart murmur. Or the patient may have been referred because of a family history of the disease or because of a family history of complications that are suspected to relate to an underlying inherited disorder, for example, premature sudden death or heart failure in a family member. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the early stages of the diagnostic pathway is often misdiagnosed. Patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may be entirely asymptomatic or present with a number of different symptoms. The most common is shortness of breath or a perceived reduction in the exercise tolerance. Other patients may complain of lightheadedness or dizziness, sometimes related to changes in posture. And many patients will also complain of palpitation, 
which may take the form of simple cardiac awareness or rapid or extra beats. Some patients will also experience exertional chest pain, which may be precipitated by exercise or heavy meals. Unlike patients with coronary disease, the pain may be prolonged and last for often many minutes or hours, even when the patient rests. Some patients may present with the complications of disease. They may present with progressive heart failure. They may present with a stroke or a transient ischemic attack, which is nearly always associated with atrial fibrillation. And of course, some patients may present for the first time with sudden cardiac death or aborted sudden cardiac death caused by ventricular arrhythmia. When patients present complaining of palpitations or lightheadedness, their symptoms may be dismissed as relating to anxiety. And in the case of syncope, it's essential to try to differentiate the difference between a typical vasovagal event, which may occur with a frequency in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy similar to that of the background population, or a syncopal event which may be attributed to an arrhythmia. In the differential diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patients may also have signs and symptoms which indicate the possibility of one of the rarer phenocopies or so-called mimics of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. What often helps us in this regard is the age of presentation. So when seeing a neonate or an infant that is subsequently found to have a thickened heart muscle, here in this scenario, the possibility of inherited metabolic diseases such as Danone's disease or glycogen storage disease is much more likely. In contrast, in patients who present in the later decades of life, diseases such as cardiac amyloidosis or perhaps Fabry disease are more likely. With regard to other symptoms, the coexistence of symptoms such as carpal tunnel syndrome in amyloidosis, sensory neural deafness in some metabolic diseases, particularly mitochondrial cytopathies, the presence of symptoms related to muscle weakness, all of these may act as pointers towards these rare phenocopies. When we come to perform cardiac investigations, again, there are a number of red flags. For example, when performing an EKG in a patient with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the presence of atrioventricular block is a very important indicator for diseases such as mitochondrial disease, Fabry disease, amyloidosis. So now you're more familiar with the way hypertrophic cardiomyopathy may present in your clinic. What are the best diagnostic tools to confirm your suspicions and how can you use them most efficiently? Let's follow the diagnostic pathway. To make a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, it's really important to follow a systematic approach that begins with history taking to establish a patient's symptoms and also to examine a family history. When taking a family history, it's important to not only note the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in other family members, but also to specifically inquire about symptoms or events which are consistent with the diagnosis. So early onset stroke or heart failure or sudden cardiac death. This inquiry is often helped by taking a three-generation family history where one specifically asks about each individual within the first-degree relatives of a, an individual. Physical examination still has an important role in the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Most of the classic signs relate to the presence of outflow tract obstruction, and it's important to elicit these at the bedside, whilst also performing typical manoeuvres such as the Valsalva manoeuvre to reveal signs consistent with provocable outflow tract obstruction. The first line investigation should be the EKG, 
The electrocardiogram is a very sensitive marker of disease in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the presence of an abnormal ECG in any patient, but particularly a young individual presenting, for example, with unexplained syncope, should always prompt further investigations. Equally, though, it's important to understand that the findings on the electrocardiogram in patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are nonspecific and that it is possible for a patient to have the disease while still having a normal 12-lead ECG. So it is vital that electrocardiography is always combined with cardiac imaging. In most circumstances, this will be with cardiac ultrasound. And the diagnostic criteria that we use is the detection of a wall thickness measurement in diastole of more than 15 millimeters in an adult or more than 13 millimeters in individuals where there is a clear family history. In some individuals, it may not be possible to interrogate every myocardial segment. This may be, for example, a problem at the left ventricular apex or the lateral wall of the left ventricle. And in such circumstances, cardiac magnetic resonance imaging provides an excellent tool for the evaluation of not only the presence of hypertrophy, but its distribution and the presence of other features such as myocardial scarring that will support a diagnosis. Another critical part of the evaluation of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is to detect the presence of outflow tract obstruction. Cardiac ultrasound is probably the best tool for this purpose, where we can, using continuous wave Doppler, detect the presence of an outflow tract gradient. Here it is also important to perform bedside maneuvers such as the Valsalva maneuver to detect outflow tract obstruction in patients without resting obstruction something that may be seen in 25% of symptomatic patients. In patients that have exertional symptoms and have no gradient with a standard transthoracic echocardiogram, one should consider performing stress echocardiography, ideally using a treadmill or a bicycle ergometer to detect provocable obstruction. Once we've established the presence of left ventricular hypertrophy using cardiac imaging, we should then consider a number of laboratory tests. These include standard tests such as the evaluation of renal function, but may also include non-specific biomarkers which are indicative of myocardial stress or damage, such as natriuretic peptides or troponin. In selected subgroups, we may also consider specific diagnostic tests, for example, the measurement of alpha-galactosidase A in patients with Fabry's disease, or the measurement of light chains in blood and urine in individuals who may have AL amyloidosis. When we've excluded phenocopies, and we suspect that the patient may have sarcomeric hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, then genetic testing enables us to confirm the diagnosis and also provides a method for cascade screening of relatives. Once you have a confirmed diagnosis, what options are available for you to consider for managing hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Let's venture into the new treatment algorithm and the latest clinical data. The treatment of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is focused on the treatment of symptoms and the prevention of complications. With regard to symptoms, we target outflow tract obstruction with negative inotropic agents such as beta blockers or non-dihydropyridine calcium antagonists or disopyramide. In some selected patients, we may 
use diuretics to reduce ventricular filling pressures. In patients with non-obstructive disease, particularly in those who are developing left ventricular systolic impairment, we may use conventional heart failure medications, including ACE inhibitors, ARBs, diuretics, and again, beta blockers. For the prevention of complications, we have established algorithms for the identification of patients who may be at high risk of ventricular arrhythmia, for whom we can use the implantable cardioverter defibrillator to prevent sudden cardiac death. Another important complication of the disease, stroke, can be prevented by identifying individuals at high risk, which is our patients who have atrial fibrillation, either paroxysmal or persistent. We should also be alert to the possibility of AF and stroke risk in patients who have significant left atrial enlargement. When patients have a high risk of stroke, they should be treated with lifelong anticoagulation. For patients with obstruction who are refractory to medical therapy, we have a number of options in which we can reduce the thickness of the interventricular septum using either a percutaneous approach with alcohol septal ablation or a surgical approach by means of a septal myectomy. In a small number of patients with progressive disease, cardiac transplantation may be appropriate. In spite of a range of therapeutic options for patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, there are a number of unmet needs. Current medical therapies do not target the underlying etiology in the majority of cases. Medical therapy is only partially effective in many patients and is often associated with limiting side effects. In patients with ventricular outflow tract obstruction and drug refractory symptoms, Invasive septal reduction therapies may be highly effective, but are associated with significant complications and have limited availability in many healthcare systems. In recent years, we have had the discovery and application of a new class of therapeutic agents, the cardiac myosin inhibitors. The first of these, Mavacampton, has been shown in a phase three trial to be highly effective in patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. A second agent, Afikampton, has also been evaluated and shown to be effective in phase two trials and is currently under evaluation in a phase three trial. Mavacampton is a small molecule allosteric inhibitor of myosin ATPase. The mechanism of action reduces the binding of myosin heavy chain to actin. In other words, the drug has a negative inotropic effect. This effect has been exploited in patients with obstructive forms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and has been shown to reduce left ventricular outflow tract gradients and to improve both symptoms and performance during cardiopulmonary exercise testing. It's also been shown to reduce markers of myocyte damage or stress, such as troponin and natriuretic peptides. In addition to its negative inotropic effect, Mavacampton also has an effect on myocardial relaxation. This is achieved through its promotion of what is called the super relaxed state of myosin, which is a confirmation of myosin in which the beta myosin heavy chain heads, which normally interact with actin, are folded back on the myosin heavy chain. In this state, ATP utilization is dramatically reduced, resulting in improved myocardial energetics and improved diastolic function. In the Explorer HCM trial, a placebo-controlled randomized trial of Mavacampton, there were substantial improvements in MYHA functional class. After 30 weeks of treatment, 
approximately half of patients were in MYHE functional class one, having been symptomatic at the beginning of the trial. And the number of patients in MYHA functional class three were reduced by 67%. As expected, there was a small decline in left ventricular ejection fraction, but this change was small and the overall safety profile of the drug was excellent. Mavacamptin has also been trialed in the context of patients who are eligible for septal reduction therapy in the VALA-HCM trial. In this trial, Mavacampton was associated again with improvements in MYHA functional class, with more than 60% of patients improving by at least one class, and more than a quarter of patients improving by more than two classes. Importantly, by the end of the study, more than 80% of patients who had been considered eligible for septal reduction therapy were no longer symptomatic enough to qualify for current criteria for septal reduction therapy showing that mavacamptin and similar drugs may be able to prevent patients from requiring invasive septal reduction treatment of their outflow tract gradients. Aficamptin is another cardiomyosin inhibitor currently undergoing phase three trials. This also targets the interaction between the myosin heavy chain and actin filaments, but does so by slowing phosphate release from myosin which stabilizes the weak actin binding myosin conformation, but with the net result that contractility is reduced, again, counteracting the known hypercontractile phenotype of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Afikampton has been shown in phase two trials to improve symptoms, again, with reductions in MYHA class in a dose-responsive manner, it too is associated with a change in left ventricular ejection fraction, but as with Mavacampton, this change was very small. Together, the trial data suggest that cardiac myosin inhibitors are a new and effective therapy for patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Pharmacotherapies are the principal tools of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy management and, like all tools, it is important to know how to use them appropriately. Let's now move into our final module and learn how to safely and effectively integrate cardiac myosin inhibitors into patient care. How then do we use cardiac myosin inhibitors in everyday practice? When we make the diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, the first and most important step, particularly in symptomatic patients, is to exclude the presence of outflow tract obstruction. In symptomatic patients that have no gradient at rest, or with bedside maneuvers, or with an appropriate stress test, these patients are not candidates for Mavacampton or other cardiac myosin inhibitors at this moment in time. Conversely, symptomatic patients with outflow tract gradients of more than 50 millimeters of mercury at rest or with provocation, who are receiving maximal tolerated conventional therapy with beta blockers, verapamil, are potential candidates for Mavacampton. Where do cardiac myosin inhibitors fit in the current management algorithm for obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? At present, we should first of all focus on patients' comorbidities, which may be exacerbating their symptoms. So it is important to advise patients about lifestyle adjustment, weight reduction, the importance of maintaining hydration. It is also important, where possible, to minimize the use of drugs which may exacerbate outflow tract obstruction such as vasodilators and diuretics. When patients remain symptomatic after these conservative measures, 
First line therapy is beta blockade. If this is not tolerated or if, it, if beta blockers are contraindicated, then calcium antagonists such as verapamil or diltiazem should be considered. If patients remain symptomatic or have significant side effects, they may then be candidates for septal reduction therapy. Diazepyramide may also be appropriate in patients who have been unresponsive to either beta blockers or calcium antagonists. At present, cardiac myosin inhibitors have been explored in patients receiving treatment with beta blockers and calcium antagonists and have also been evaluated in patients who have been refractory to conventional medical therapy and who are candidates for surgical reduction. In the United States, Mavacamptin is only available through the REMS program, a risk evaluation and mitigation strategies program. This is a conventional drug safety program used in the US for new medications in order to monitor safety concerns. The focus with Mavacamptin is to ensure that the drug is only administered to patients that have normal resting systolic function. The program is also designed to ensure that ejection fraction, systolic function is monitored during drug initiation and up titration. The program is designed to ensure behavior change such that physicians and patients are aware of medications that may interact with Mavacamptin or its metabolism. And the program also ensures that only authorized pharmacists or certified pharmacies can dispense the drug. Pausing here for a moment, the risk evaluation and mitigation strategy or REMS program, has two objectives. The first objective focuses on LVEF monitoring. Mavacamptin intentionally reduces cardiac hypercontractility, so regular echocardiograms are needed to ensure these reductions do not cause heart failure due to systolic dysfunction. The second objective is to avoid or minimize drug-drug interactions. Mavacamptin is metabolized through the CYP2C19, CYP3A4, and CYP2C9 pathways. These are also the key pathways used to metabolize many other medications, so care must be taken to ensure that all medications and dietary supplements a patient is taking or is considering taking be thoughtfully prescribed at doses to avoid unintentional subtherapeutic or supertherapeutic dosing. Before prescribing or dispensing Mavacamptin, healthcare providers, pharmacists, and pharmacies must be certified in the REMS program. Certification is achieved through the successful completion of a knowledge assessment and enrollment form and submitting both online or via fax. Patients must enroll in the REMS program after being counseled by their healthcare provider and getting a baseline echocardiogram to assess eligibility for treatment. Once patients complete the enrollment form, it can be submitted online or via fax. As part of their enrollment, patients agree to get regular echocardiograms as directed by their healthcare provider report symptoms of systolic heart failure, and to notify their provider of any changes to other agents used in their treatment regimens, including other medications and dietary supplements. Providers may also assist patients with enrollment into an optional patient support program offered by the manufacturer. The program is designed to help answer patients' questions and to provide support in obtaining access to treatment. Let's go back to Dr. Elliott as he outlines the initiation and titration of Mavacamptin. Protocols have been established as part of the REMS program to ensure safety of initiation and uptitration of Mavacamptin. These focus on two elements. The first phase monitors the response of the outflow tract gradient to the initial dose. The aim of this first phase is to permit down titration in patients who have 
very early and significant reductions in the gradient and thereby avoid early deterioration in left ventricular ejection fraction. For patients who tolerate initial doses and who have a stable gradient, doses are maintained for the first 12 weeks. The second key element is the monitoring of ejection fraction at every dose increment so that during up titration of drug, there is a standardized approach to the monitoring of the ejection fraction. The aim of both of these assessments is to ensure that patients receive maximum benefit in terms of gradient reduction and improvement in symptoms whilst maintaining an ejection fraction of more than 50%. Let's spend a moment going into more detail on how to adjust Mavicampton doses. The goal is to initiate and slowly titrate the Mavicampton dose to reduce cardiac hypercontractility, but not to reduce it so much that the patient starts to tip into heart failure. In a patient who is newly initiating Mavicampton, if the LVEF is 55% or more, start patients on 5 mg of Mavicampton once daily. At week 4, week 8, and week 12, patients must get an echocardiogram and physicians must assess the Visalva LVOT gradient and LVEF. Based on these findings, the Mavicampton dose may be maintained, down-titrated, or withheld. By week 12, patients using a stable dose of 2.5 mg or 5 mg Mavicampton will move into the maintenance phase. Thereafter, echocardiograms are performed every 12 weeks. If at any point in time the patient's LVEF falls below 50%, interrupt treatment and restart after 4 weeks if the LVEF is 50% or more. Now, let's pick back up with Dr. Elliott. In the second phase, the emphasis on tailoring the dose of the drug to the response of the patient's symptoms and their gradient. But at each increase in the dose, the same protocol for monitoring left ventricular ejection fraction is followed to ensure safety and the avoidance of a reduction in the ejection fraction below 50%. To expand on Dr. Elliott's excellent summary, during the maintenance phase of Mavicampton, Patients must get an echocardiogram at week 12 and every 12 weeks thereafter to assess their response to treatment, including Valsalva LVOT gradient and LVEF. These regular check-ins are crucial opportunities to monitor patients and ensure they are taking an appropriate dose for their current condition and to reassess their medication lists for potential drug-drug interactions. Based on their LVEF and LVOT gradient, you will either maintain their current dose up-titrate to the next higher daily dose, or interrupt treatment. More on treatment interruption in a moment. As part of the REMS program, the echocardiogram, assessment, dose adjustment process continues every 12 weeks for the duration of treatment with Mavicampton. Treatment interruption is necessary if, at any point, the patient's LVEF falls below 50%. Recheck echocardiogram parameters every four weeks. Once the LVEF is at or above 50%, treatment can be reinitiated at the next lower dose. Permanent discontinuation of Mavicampton may become necessary if LVEF is below 50% twice while taking 2.5 mg daily. We'll now turn back to Dr. Elliott's recommendations for counseling patients about Mavicampton. Another important part of the REMS program is to ensure that patients have the appropriate knowledge to participate actively in their care. Patients should be aware of the risks of a reduction in ejection fraction during therapy and how they can identify symptoms which may indicate a reduction in ejection fraction. They should be encouraged and be provided with systems for prompt reporting of new or worsening symptoms. 
They should be aware of drug-drug interactions, and in particular drugs which may alter the metabolism of mavocamptin, in particular proton pump inhibitors. And they should be aware of the necessity of regular echocardiograms in the monitoring of their response to therapy. We've learned a great deal about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy pathophysiology and how cardiac myosin inhibitors are beginning to change its management in the previous modules. Now let's find out what Dr. Elliott wants you to remember about recent advances in the diagnosis and treatment of this disease. So the key takeaways from the series of presentations on hypertrophic cardiomyopathy are that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is the most common inherited cardiac disease and has a highly variable disease course and is associated with significant lifelong morbidity and risk of life-threatening complications. Patients present with symptoms that may overlap with many other common diseases, but a diagnosis is facilitated by a systematic approach that includes history taking and evaluation of a family and simple tests such as the electrocardiogram and cardiac imaging. In selected patients, further more specialized tests, including genetic testing, may help to confirm the diagnosis and also assist in the evaluation of families. Cardiac myosin inhibitors have been shown to have significant beneficial effects for patients with obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And the first in class, Mavacamptin, is currently approved for the treatment of obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in adults. So this ends our discussion for today. I hope you found this visual exploration of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy informative and useful for your practice. And I encourage you to participate in the other activities that are focused on this topic. Thank you very much for participating. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KYU860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol-Myers Squibb.